Welcome to Unreal, a podcast about Irish history, stories, and tradition. Far below the ocean waves lie the strange and mysterious people of the sea. Ever since sailors have sailed, there have been tales of these people, the way they look, the songs they sing, and the strange hold they have over us. From ancient times to the modern day, we have been fascinated by stories of the sea folk, and from terrifying monsters to gentle, loving beings, our views on them are ever-changing. But one thing is certain, merfolk are very different to humans. And when human and sea person meet, things rarely go according to plan. I'm Ruth Atkins, and this is Unreal. Our stories of gentle, loving little mermaids are a pretty recent invention. For a long time, legends spoke of merpeople as being dangerous and deadly creatures, soulless monsters rather than people with hearts and minds. Stories of mermaids and sirens are an early example of the femme fatale motif, women who appear beautiful and alluring on the surface, but who use these irresistible powers to tempt foolish men to their deaths. For mermaids, this surface is literal. They might look like beautiful human women above the water, but beneath the waves, they hide a body that many storytellers regarded as monstrous. Ireland's version of these dangerous sea women was called the Murducan. This is a Middle Irish term for mermaids or sirens, it literally translates to sea singers. The Murducans were beautiful women, with yellow hair and pale skin. But stories describe their lower bodies as being as large as a hill, hairy and clawed, waiting hungrily for their prey to get close enough. Laura Gabala Aaron, which I spoke about in a recent episode, mentions a meeting with the Murducans. Some of Ireland's ancestors encountered them in the Caspian Sea on their journey from Israel to Ireland. The druid Cahar, travelling with them, instructs the crew to fill their ears with molten wax so that they won't be bewitched by the siren call. This boat makes it to Ireland in safety, but others were not so lucky. And in some stories, the Mordukans appeared much closer to home. Roth Makkithang was the legendary prince of a race called the Fomorians, giant, powerful men who were said to have invaded Ireland from the sea. Because of their size and strength, the Fomorians had few enemies to fear, usually. But Roth had heard tales of the beautiful music of the Murducans, who dwelled in the Ictian Sea, now known as the English Channel. Roth wanted to hear their songs for himself, 
he rowed his boat far out into these waters, until he came across a group of them singing together in the waves. When Roth rowed up, the Murdukans sang a wonderful tune to him, until Roth's eyelids became heavy and he drifted into a deep sleep. The moment he lost consciousness, the Murdukans pounced. They feasted on Roth and divided his body, each carrying a separate bone for themselves. Soon after, so the story goes, one of Roth's enormous thigh bones washed up at the town of Waterford on Ireland's southern coast, causing wonder to those who found it. It was so large that the drink of a hundred men would fit in the hollow of the bone, a terrifying testament that even the mightiest person can fall to the Murdukan's charm and trickery. Ever after this strange day, the city of Waterford has been known in Irish as Port Larga, the Port of the Thigh, in memory of the occasion. Early tales like these, of bewitching mermaids and seductive sirens, have been popular for thousands of years, across almost every culture and civilization. The stories were warnings, against straying too far afield and judging by appearances only. Perhaps some of the tales were stern messages from wives to their husbands who were about to embark on the long sea voyages with many a chance to break their marriage vows in far-off ports. Mermaids were also used by medieval Christians as a symbol of the evil pagan practices they were trying to stamp out. Pictures and carvings of mermaids adorned churches, as a way to depict lust and vanity, both of which were deadly sins. The fishes the mermaids clasped in their hands symbolised the Christian souls that they had seduced and trapped into their wicked ways. The seduction of the exotic and the exciting, it was said, could lead to devastating, ruinous or even deadly consequences. In more recent centuries, though, stories of sea people moved from legend to folktale, and the dangers they posed were no longer fatal, though they could still be devastating. Rather than the alluring, hungry monsters of siren and Murdukan tales, stories of the sea folk began to depict them as real people, with their own thoughts and desires. And it was now possible to imagine stories of real relationships between humans and sea people that didn't end with dinner. However, these relationships rarely ended happily. Sea folk were still so different to us, so strange and other, that on land they would always feel the call of the sea. And it was impossible for such a marriage to last without one side sacrificing their old life and home entirely. There were several comedic stories in the early 19th century that focused on the physical differences between humans and sea folk, and the strange traits that could be passed on to children born of such relationships. An Irish story called The Wonderful Tune 
tells of a fiddler called Morris Connor, whose music enchanted a beautiful Merrow, who chanced to hear it. Merrows were another Irish mermaid, again very beautiful, but much more fish-like than the earlier Merducans had been described. As the story goes, her hair was long and green, her teeth like rows of pearl, her lips were the colour of red coral, and she had an elegant gown, as white as the foam of the wave. The Merrill persuaded Morris to marry her and be king of the fishes under the waves. But Morris's mother had some pretty grave doubts. She called out to Morris as he danced with the green-haired lady at the seashore. There's my son going away from me to marry a scaly woman. And who knows, but tis grandmother I may be to a hake or a cod. Lord, help and pity me. I could boil and eat my own grandchild without knowing it, with a bit of salt butter. The poor woman, through fear of accidentally eating her own fishy grandchildren, died just three weeks after the wedding. And it's said that while Morris has a happy marriage with his mermaid wife, seafarers can still sometimes hear him singing mournfully off the coast of Kerry. Beautiful shore with thy spreading strand, thy crystal water and diamond sand. Never would I have parted from thee, but for the sake of my fair lady. There are several similar stories about male selkies having relationships with human women. Tales of selkies, who were seal folk, were particularly popular in Scotland and certain parts of the west of Ireland. It was believed that selkies lived underwater as seals, but they could take off their skins and walk on land as men and women. Quite often, these stories about male selkies were funnier tales. Women, who were unsatisfied with their human husbands, would go to the seashore and seek a quick affair with an attractive seal man. But later, they would get a terrible shock when children were born with webbed, seal-like flippers for hands. Several families have claimed to be descended from the seal folk, which brings them luck, including the Connollys, Duffies and the Macfees. However, the more well-known Selkie tales have had much more tragic outcomes. They deal in a symbolic way with many difficult questions of exploitation, abuse and rape. A Scottish ballad called The Great Selkie of Sulskerie opens on a strange scene. In Norway land there lived a maid Hush lily she did say Oh little can I my baby's father nor yet the land that he dwells in. 
A young woman is nursing her baby child, but the woman doesn't know anything about the child's mysterious father. When the woman goes to bed that night, a grey silky comes through her window and lies at her feet. The silky promises her a fee for nursing their child and asks her to marry him. I am a man upon the land I am a silky in the sea And when I'm far and far from land My home it is in Sulskiri My dear, I'll wed you with a ring With a ring, my dear, I'll wed with thee you may go to the wedding with whom you will. I'm sure we'll never married be. She declines. Then the Selkie makes a terrible prophecy. He will marry a gunner good, and a gay good gunner he may be. But he'll go out on a May morning, and he'll shoot your son, and he'll shoot me. It's a really strange and haunting song about a woman used against her knowledge and will by a sulky man, and set on a tragic destiny that she has no choice but to follow. The most famous sulky tale is similarly disturbing. But in this story, the victim is not a human, but rather a selky woman. In the tale, a fisherman spies a group of beautiful women on the seashore. Lying nearby these women is a pile of seal skins. And suddenly the fisherman realises that these are not women at all, but selky maidens. Quietly, he creeps up and takes one of the skins, hiding it. When the Selkies return to the sea, one woman is left on the shore, trapped in human form without her skin. She is alone and afraid, and the fisherman seizes his opportunity, persuading her to marry him. The Selkie and the fisherman live together for many years, and she bears him seven children. But it is a relationship based on secrecy, lies and mistrust. The fisherman keeps the skin well hidden, and every night the selkie maiden looks wistfully out to the sea that was once her home. One day, when the fisherman is out at sea, one of the children hurts her foot and the selkie woman searches the house for a strip of cloth to use as a bandage. Why don't you use this, mother? asks the little girl. And from under her bed, she pulls the long black sealskin that belongs to the selkie maid. Oh, 
The moment she sees her skin again, the Selkie cannot help herself. There is no questioning, no choice to be made. She simply has to go. The Selkie takes her skin, leaves her children and husband, and returns forever to the waters and home that she had lost. In some versions of the story, the fisherman spots her leaving and follows her to the water edge, where he sees his wife clasped in the embrace of a bull seal. Sometimes he hears her sing a strange song just before she disappears below the water forever. Good man, O wiseness, farewell to thee. I liked thee well, thou were good to me but I love better my man of the sea. There is an Irish Mera story called The Lady of Goleris, which is very similar. In this story, the Mero has a little hat called a Cohaline Drick, which, when stolen, similarly prevents her from returning to the water. And it's really interesting to see how our modern perception of stories like these has changed. In the past, such tales would have been used to discourage men from seeking relationships with beautiful but dangerous women from outside their community, who might not devour you as the old mermaids and sirens did, but will never truly love or understand you. Such women will leave you the first chance they get, and their fickleness will destroy your life and family in possibly even more painful ways than death. Now though, our sympathies lie pretty firmly with the sulky maiden we have come to read the human as the villain of the tale. And now, when the story is told, the terrible ordeal of captivity that the Selkie maiden endured is the focus of the story, not the plight of her husband when she eventually escapes. We see the tale now as a warning against the cruelty and foolishness of trying to trick someone into loving you. In 1836, Hans Christian Andersen wrote The Little Mermaid, a fairy tale of longing and of an eternal, unrequited love that has become the quintessential depiction of mermaids ever since. Andersen's Little Mermaid is the furthest thing from dangerous. She is a gentle but passionate being whose love for humanity and the prince she meets is so strong that she is willing to give up everything to be with him. Her tail, her voice, and in the end, her life. It's hard to overstate just how huge an impact Anderson's well-loved fairy tale had on how we have come to view the people of the sea. Now, when we think of mermaids, 
we don't tend to think of lust or vanity or danger. We think of love, of its strengths and sorrows, and of the ways that we give ourselves up to it, even when others warn us of the dangers, and even when we know it may not go our way. From a dark warning against love at first sight, the mermaid has become a symbol of love against the odds, against the warnings, for those brave enough to take the leap of faith and risk everything they have for the love they want most in the world. Anderson's story has inspired countless writers and artists in the nearly 200 years since it was published. And one Irish writer, who seems to have been particularly struck by its tale of forbidden, impossible love, was Oscar Wilde. Wilde wrote several bittersweet fairy stories, like The Happy Prince and The Selfish Giant. But he wrote another, less well-known story, that's clearly inspired by Anderson's Little Mermaid. The story is called The Fisherman's Soul. And it's easy to see in its hopeful message why Oscar Wilde was so captivated. In Wilde's tale, it is the fisherman who gives up his soul to live with the mermaid. And although things don't go according to plan, their love is so pure and true that it comes to change the minds of the people who spoke out against it. And their sad ending transforms the world around them into a better, more loving place as a whole. There was once a young fisherman who caught a little mermaid in his net while he was out at sea. The fisherman agreed to release her if she promised to come and sing for him whenever he called, to lead fish into his nets. And so, every evening the mermaid came and sang. Her voice was so sweet that the fisherman soon forgot his nets and cunning and sat idle in his boat, listening until the sea mists crept around him. One evening, he could bear it no longer, and he called out to her, Little mermaid, I love you. Marry me. But the mermaid shook her head. You have a human soul, she answered. If you would only send away your soul, then I could love you. What use is my soul to me, the fisherman thought. I cannot see it. I cannot touch it. I do not know it. And so he decided to get rid of it. He asked his priest, who became angry when he heard. You are mad, said the priest. There is nothing more precious than a human soul. It is worth all the gold that is in the world, more precious than the rubies of the kings. And as for the sea folk, they are lost, and they who would love them will be lost also. But the fisherman was determined. Next, he spoke to the merchants in the nearby market but still, he couldn't convince anyone to take his soul away. Then, the fisherman remembered a witch who lived in a cave by the sea. 
he went there immediately and asked her to send his soul away. The witch grew pale and shuddered. Pretty boy, pretty boy, she muttered. That is a terrible thing to do. It took a while, but eventually the fisherman convinced her and the witch explained what he had to do. Stand on the seashore with your back to the moon and cut away your shadow from around your feet, she said. This is your soul's body, and when you tell it to leave you, it will do so. The fisherman's soul cried out, begging and pleading with his master not to send him away. At least let me take your heart with me, it cried. But the fisherman refused. His heart belonged to the mermaid. He cut his shadow away from his feet and plunged into the water, where the little mermaid rose up to meet him and threw her arms around his neck. The fisherman's soul stood on the lonely beach and watched them as they sank down into the sea. A year later, the fisherman's soul came down to the seashore and called up the fisherman. Come near and listen, for I have seen marvellous things. I have found the mirror of wisdom, and he who looks into it will be the wisest man in the world. If you will let me be part of you again, it will be yours. But the fisherman laughed. Love is better than wisdom, he said, and the little mermaid loves me. After a second year had passed, the soul returned. Come near and listen, he said, for I have seen marvellous things. I have found the ring of riches, and he who wears it is richer than all the kings of the world. If you let me be part of you again, it will be yours. But the fisherman laughed. Love is better than riches, he said, and the little mermaid loves me. After the third year had passed, the soul came once again. Come near, he said, and listen, for I have seen marvellous things. This time, the soul talked about a city, just a day's journey away, where he had seen a beautiful girl dancing. Her feet were naked, the soul said, and they moved over the carpet like little white pigeons. The fisherman thought of his little mermaid, who had no feet and could not dance. He greatly desired to see a woman dance again. It is only a day's journey, he said to himself. So he stretched out his arms to the soul, who gave a cry of joy and entered into him again. But the fisherman's soul had played a cunning trick on him. Only once in his life may a man send his soul away, and he who takes his soul back must keep it with him forever. And, after spending years wandering the world without a heart, the fisherman's soul had turned cruel, tempting him to do evil things. 
The fisherman was distraught when he realised what had happened. He could not return to his mermaid. He bound his hands so that he couldn't do the soul's evil bidding, and he built a hut by the seashore where he could call out to the mermaid each morning and evening. But she never rose from the sea to meet him, and every night the soul whispered temptations into his ear. Finally, the soul spoke to the young fisherman as he sat in the hut alone. I will tempt you no longer, for your love is stronger than I am. But I pray you to allow me to enter into your heart, for you were so full of love for the mermaid that there is no more room for me to enter it, and it's dark and lonely out here on my own. Feeling sympathy for the soul, the fisherman agreed. But suddenly, he heard a piercing cry come from the sea. He ran down to the shore, and there in the surf lay the body of his little mermaid. As the fisherman looked down at the mermaid, his heart broke open, his soul entered into his heart, and all collapsed by the mermaid's side and were covered by the rising waves. The following morning, the old priest came to the shore to bless the sea. There, he found the bodies of the fisherman and his bride. The priest was shocked and angry to see that the fisherman had disobeyed him and fallen in love with the mermaid. Accursed be the sea folk, and accursed be all they who love them, the priest said. He ordered his followers to bury the bodies in an unmarked grave, in a field where no flowers grew. But not too long after this, the old priest went to preach in his chapel, and he found it filled with fragrant flowers. Their sweet smell filled his head, and when he opened his mouth, he suddenly found that he could not preach of a god of wrath. Instead, the old priest found himself preaching to his congregation about a god whose name was Love. And when he had finished his word, the people wept. And when the priest went back to the sacristy, his eyes were full of tears also. The priest asked his servants where the flowers had come from. From that corner of the field nearby, they answered. And hearing this, the priest trembled and began to pray. In the morning, when it was still dawn, he went forth with the monks and the musicians and the candle bearers and the swingers of censers and a great company and came to the shore of the sea. He blessed the sea and all the wild things that are in it. He also blessed the fawns and the things that dance in the woodland and the bright-eyed things that peer through the leaves. All things in God's world he blessed 
and the people were filled with joy and wonder. Yet, never again did flowers grow in that corner of the field, and never again came the sea folk into the bay, for they went to another part of the sea. So, from a bitter warning against lust, to a hopeful celebration of love, the mermaid has captivated us through the centuries. Whether we fear them or adore them, we cannot help but be fascinated by these people of the sea. And yet, in spite of our fascination, these stories are also united in their sense of mystery. There is so much left unsaid about mermaids and the lives they lead. Of all the folk tales and fairy stories I have shared, the only one told from a mermaid's perspective is Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid. Although we love to hear about them, and they remain beautiful above the surface at first glance, still to this day, the people of the sea have untold depths that we cannot spot below the waves. Perhaps someday in the future, a new mermaid story will come and give us the key to understanding them once and for all. But until then, the people of the sea remain a mystery that we can never truly know. Oh, come ye, mother waters, I am diving into thee. Float me on your rivers and sing me with your sea. Oh, come ye, mother Thanks for listening to this episode of Unreal. You can find links to the sources I used in this episode on my website, unrealpodcast.com. The Great Silky of Sul Skiri was sung by June Tabor, and the song you are listening to right now is O Come Ye by Ayla Nerio. Links to all the music from this episode are in the show notes also. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with a friend or leaving a rating or review where you listen. It really helps to spread the word. I hope you are keeping well under quarantine and I'll be back soon with a new story to tell. But until then, Gnairi on Bokerlapt.
and sing me with your seed.